Hello and welcome to episode 263 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I am your host, Weishan, and I've got Tony with me here today in the same freaking time zone, baby. Same time zone, um, but as usual, you fly over and, uh, you know, you start to you feel like all run down, sick and jet lagged. And so your voice sounds like uh, it's been uh, run over with sandpaper. But, yeah, it's good. Yep, yep. It's better today, but you'll you'll see in our recording, it's like it's it's worse than this. Uh, but I'm on the man, people. But, you, you know, you can't blame me. It's been three and a half years, you know, since I've taken a 16 hour flight. And for that, I would I had to get up at like, I don't know, 4 a.m. Hong Kong time to make it for my flight. Um, so I was running on very little sleep. Clearly didn't have enough sleep on the flight. Uh, probably dehydrated as well. And then first thing Tony decides to to do while I'm here when I get off the plane, um, which which I love actually. But anyway, we we went for beer, went for beers. Beers, uh, plural. Yeah, yes. plural. Well, it's been three years. It was about time. So. Yeah, I know. Um, so you just have to deal with me with this voice. There it's we go. Hot, no. There we go. <laughs> if HR is <laughs> listening, I'm not going to say anything. So no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, before we get to our guest, I do want to give an update from our last podcast. We went over the NAFIS, the North American Financial Information Summit, um, yeah. which is on the May sixth. It's on May sixteenth. Um, May sixteenth. I don't know where it is. In, in Midtown. That's all we need. Mm. But um, a few days after that podcast went up, um, we uh, broke the news about Bloomberg GPT, their new large language model. Um, so they spoke with us about that um, after they published uh, a paper that they put out about a research paper on it. So we have an article up on the website that you can see uh, that goes through what Bloomberg GPT is and how they're hoping it will help to kind of supercharge um, the search function um, and charting capabilities and whatnot of the, the Bloomberg terminal. With that said, at the event, uh, we're going to have a fireside chat. Um, it will be myself and uh, Gideon Mann, and he'll just kind of walk through what this will mean for terminal users and stuff like that. So yet another reason to come to the next event. But with that sales pitch out of the way, and it's free for end users, of course. Um, I mean, I wish I, I wish I could be here for that. I would be, I would be so keen to watch that, well, to listen to that. <laughs> I mean, and we all know I'm master at interviewing people so as you'll as you'll soon hear on this next interview who do we got this week shen <laughs> you're the king of ramblers by one but anyway yeah. um <laughs> we've got tyler Durr. he's the cto at broadridge uh, on the podcast for you guys this week um we talk about various topics uh you know from acquisitions to blockchain to t plus one we also had a little nice fireside uh chat at the end so sorry lightning round more like lightning round yeah lightning yeah. round. For <laughs> sorry you, you you screwed you'll me hear over it. earlier yeah anyway yeah you'll hear it um yeah so we have that for you this week see y'all next week okay and now we have tyler durr cto at broadridge joining us on the podcast today hey tyler how are you doing I'm doing great, thank you. Cool. Uh, just before we begin here, um, if you could give the audience uh, a, a little bit of uh, a background of yourself, uh, what you do at Broadridge and, and so on. 
So uh, as mentioned, I'm Tyler Durr. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Broadridge. Uh, we're a large financial services fintech organization that operates uh, horizontally wide utilities in the industry. I've been here for about a decade. It often feels like um, possibly a lot longer than that, um, but it's been uh, a journey that I've evolved with the organization. We've grown through a lot of acquisitions since I've been here, so I've seen a lot of change for both organic work that we've done, but also the type of M&A activity that we do, that we've had a pretty diverse portfolio that we brought together. Um, I spent my career prior to Broadridge really in transfer agency operations. So if you think about mutual funds and ETFs and record keeping around that, uh, spent my career really in technology and, and product operations roles around that. Um, so a lot on heavy transaction processing stuff that's regulatory uh, in nature. Um, so a lot of that type of structure and business rules oriented systems. And then also have, uh, since I've been with Broadridge, have had the opportunity to be in uh, several different roles. And so I've had an opportunity to grow with the company from being a chief operations officer of one of our business lines to uh, working uh, you know, exclusively in technology and now leading technology for the enterprise here. So I'm happy to be here today with you. You know, it's, it's funny. So you bring up the fact that you've been, um, that, that Broadridge has grown through, there have been a lot of acquisitions. Um, we recently uh, wrote, uh, well, Wei Shen recently wrote an article, published an article about Broadridge and it's kind of how it's viewing the order management system OMS landscape. Um, and that was kind of after the deal with activity. Can you tell, can you walk through the uh, listeners? What, after going through that process and kind of bringing these acquisitions together, what are some of the lessons that you've learned? Because acquisitions are never easy. And when you're trying to build out a system and try and say, okay, what's what's the duplicate? What are we getting rid of? What are we going to keep? What's the best breed? At the end of the day, it all comes down with putting together a better system and providing more analytics, providing more context around data. But can you kind of walk us through kind of maybe what were some of the lessons that you've learned as a CTO um, as you got through that process? Well, there's a there's a couple of interesting aspects of that. Uh, you know, our acquisition of activity was really um, in in two areas. One was really to grow our client presence outside of North America. So it was really around brand recognition, logos that um, activity had done a lot of partnership with over the years that just weren't familiar to Broadridge. They may have been clients of ours in North America, but we didn't really know them outside of North America. So it was really an opportunity for us to think about how could we introduce ourselves to these new logos and ways in which they could understand the offerings that we provide that are outside of the, I call it the OMS and the trading capabilities that they had been doing for years with activity and really opening them to the possibilities of what else Broadridge does in the financial services segment. I think the the interesting learning for us is OMS systems, you know, as they're running, they're a lot different than clearing and settling and regulatory platforms that we run across the rest of the plant. Uh, they're much more sensitive and fault tolerant, you know, and having that kind of availability and, and openness, um, you know, the OMS platforms. You know, their functionality is wide, but they're very open platforms when you think about its connection to markets, uh, the way in which they interface with back end, um, 
if you will, transaction record keeping systems. And so that type of integration and the integration that was done there was a good learning, I think, for us as an organization to start to think about how we could become best of breed integrators and connecting a lot of our regulatory and books and records, uh, record keeping assets to things that are really around OMS. Um, and that's been like the story that we've been talking to these now clients that we service across both order management and the traditional business that we had inside of Broadridge prior to the acquisition. I think one thing we've also seen is there's a lot of technical debt and complexity of these systems that do order management. Over time, people have built a lot of complexity around these solutions and really looking at, you know, legacy in terms of their their offerings and what's contemporary in market, you know, we really thought that it allowed us an opportunity to really bring some new life into these order management capabilities um, and really think about how we could modernize some of the tech debt that we've seen other organizations have really had around those types of assets that have been built on over years and asset classes and changes in the market. And as you start to think about, you know, the changes in the industry of things going from T3 to T1 to T0, you know, it's really starting to change the way that you think about order management systems and the way that record keeping needs to happen, which is obviously the whole package that we offer. Can I, let me ask you something. You, you, you brought up this idea of kind of creating a best of breed solution. From your perspective, you, you look at a lot of companies and that's what you know, since 2008 through acquisition, whether it's Broadridge, whether it's SSNC, LSEG, ION, um, State Street, a lot of acquisitions to kind of create a more robust product, front to back, kind of fill every need. Additionally, there's this, at the same time, there's this kind of this cloud arms race that you're seeing happening um, in the industry with, you know, let's create partnerships. We need to have a cloud provider that you know has our interests and needs. Where do you see from the from capital markets technology perspective? I know Broadridge has you know a lot of tentacles, and but for our audience, the capital markets is what we, we what we focus on. How do you see that idea of kind of creating best of breed solutions through acquisition? Because I, I would imagine it's going to become more challenging as cloud kind of opens up the market, the ability to deliver services, um, you know, software, the service infrastructure, service, whatever the hell you want to call it. That's going to keep on becoming more easy. So how do you as a CTO kind of game plan for that five years out, 10 years out into an unknown future, quite frankly, as firms embrace the cloud more and as you try and create a best of breed solution i almost wonder is that acquisition model does that change in the future um of what we're seeing in capital markets or will always kind of be there and be that well you know the way that i would i would talk about that and internally the way that that i reference it is we really need to become better integrators and that, you know, the ability for us to have very rich, deep intellectual property software that's in capital markets is always going to be something that we're going to build upon and, and do greenfield work. We're going to acquire in the market where we, we feel like there's leading edge capabilities that complement what we already have. Um, but that, you know, 
race to the cloud, I, I think there's there's two parts of it. It's really the openness, I think, also of the platform and the ability to be very good integrators and thinking about services and services first, whether you're doing an acquisition or whether you're doing technology innovation work internally, really looking at services and having an open style system that allows you to become part of a larger platform. Uh, that's the way that I really think about how we look at opportunities in the market for acquisition, you know, how open are platforms that we'd be looking to acquire, because it's really becoming more of a need from customers to have flexibility. They want flexibility in their own architectures At many times service providers like us, and you listed many in your, in your question, that we are part of a larger ecosystem inside of our clients and mm -hmm. having, you know, openness to the platforms is I think a key where it sits, where it runs, where it's hosted cloud is always, I think going to be a preference. It's often at times also being multi-cloud because you have customers that ha either have a preference or they've already got an existing footprint and they're thinking about interoperability in their own stack. And they're like, look, this is great. You've got an open platform that works with services, but what we need to have it do is run in this cloud environment uh, because there are preferences already being identified. So I think that when we look at this, both the service enablement of our platforms and having very open and well-defined standards around that, we believe it is an important element of both acquisition and greenfield but also the, the ability to be multi-cloud, which if you would have asked me that question four to five years ago, I probably would have answered it very differently. It would have yeah. been, you know, find a cloud provider, get scale with it. Um, but I think that, you know, being a good listener with our clients and hearing that multi-cloud is really the journey that they're on also, both for redundancy, especially in OMS platforms of having that kind of um, ability to flex between sites, that that's becoming more of a part of of minimizing risk and downtime and outages and financial risk as associated with that and operational risk. But I think that's a little bit about what I'd say um, I talk about internally when we think about our strategy, about our vision and what, about what the target looks like and how that factors into both M&A and also how we build platforms. Do you know more around the architecture? So there's one follow up then to that. So as you said, like five years ago, the conversation around cloud, you know, so you, at the top, you said that you've been with the company for about a decade. I've been with Waters covering this field for 13 years now. And when we used to host conferences, the idea around cloud was, no, we're not going to AWS, you know, Google, IBM. No, 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 we're not going to, you know, it, we'll use those for use case studies, but we want to build ourselves. There was a very much a build it ourselves mentality that existed. Can you... Maybe walk me through. So you've been there for 10 years and you're talking about openness of systems. That idea has changed, right? Like there was a time, you know, maybe certainly before the financial crisis, maybe the financial crisis changed some minds around it. But where that idea of having open platforms was, you know, that that was a no, that was that was a no no for the big major technology players um, in the capital markets field. It it would seem though that that's changing. Even Bloomberg, you know, has its open API, you know, stuff like that, where they're they're slowly opening things up. So creating these big monolithic systems that are walled off gardens, that's what seems to be the the big change in the industry. Would you agree with that statement? And why do you if if you do um why do you think that that it has changed or if you don't 
please uh, feel free to correct me. Well, it's it's interesting. I haven't had that uh, that analogy with the walled off garden used before, so I might I might try to lift that from you. Uh, that that's a good Go way to it. describe it. But those I but, stole from but, somebody else. <laughs> but the you know the thing that I would say in many cases you've got deep intellectual property systems, and in, in most environments like ours, especially in capital markets, you've built that robust capability over years. So there's been a lot of investment in ensuring that you've got deep, feature-rich functionality to serve client needs in capital markets, whether it's fixed income order management, you go across the spectrum in the places that you know we have had success, that you build very deep, robust functionality. The challenge is really trying to open that up. And I feel like the, the forcing function has been a bit of how our customers, I think, have looked to have more of a platform play inside of their own organizations. They want to do relationships, I feel like, in most cases now, when it's either contractual or we're in an RFP or we're in something that's competitive, people are really using the words. They want an open platform um, and something that can fit inside of a broader ecosystem. And so I believe that these walled off gardens are really something that's um, was a legacy, I would say, build and design process that's really mm -hmm. getting challenged because of the nature of the way our customers intend to buy and look into the market to say, look, you may have very deep IP in one space, but we may want to complement that with a growing fintech firm, something that maybe you're not investing in yet, but we think it's a competitive advantage. And I think having the ability to have a system that we can enable our clients to aggressively keep up with market competition and possibly have... Um, you know, these open capabilities that allow them to look at new entrants into the market that are fintechs, maybe maybe firms that we would likely acquire over time, but maybe aren't prepared to do now at Broadridge, mm -hmm. but that we could see them being able to bolt those capabilities on to our existing deep IP, but enrich the capability for the client. I feel like that is a lot of what we're hearing in the market from customers. And that's what really, I feel like backs a lot of our architecture and our design process is really being thoughtful listeners with our clients because they're giving us signals about where they intend to take the technology. And we need to ensure that we're on the forefront of listening to that and ensuring that our architecture is adapting. And I feel it's really more platform and it's openness. So then, okay, bringing it back to what you said earlier about you need to become better integrators, right? And um, with M&A constantly happening in the market and, you know, how do you, um, maybe could you give us an example of how you actually do that in practice and how you see other firms in the market um, doing that and you know, catering to what your clients want, which is that flexibility. They want that open, they want that open platform themselves, right? So how do you, yeah, give me an example of how do you actually do that in practice and where um, could other firms maybe, you know, do it better? Um, you know, where have they been doing it wrong if, if you've seen? I could maybe share a little bit about how we've learned around that. So I would say, you know, during, you know, contractual times or RFP times with clients, having a good understanding of what you're bidding on and how your solution fits into the broader ecosystem is, I think, one key element. Upfront, understanding what the true intent with the client is around 
the way that they're going to harness and leverage your capability. And many times when you go through that type of a discussion or that type of a depiction, meaning a visual picture of it that really shows your platform from Broadridge is fitting into a broader client ecosystem, you start to see how their workflows change, how the API integrations need to be factored in and the way it's going to talk both in real time if it's required to do or how data is going to move inside of this broader ecosystem. Um, I would say, you know, we have situations where we're in competitive bidding all the time, that this is a core part of how we really go through an assessment process now to look at what we need to do to be best of breed integrators. So it's in the upfront deal process, it's understanding in the RFP and, and at times that we're gathering requirements with clients. So that's on new customers and that's probably an easier one. On existing clients, it's really trying to ensure that we have an ongoing dialogue. One of the things that I've been really trying to um, establish here is getting ongoing relationships with CIOs and CTOs at our clients that I can go out and talk to them about where their strategy is headed. I found that's been very useful since I've assumed on this role in the last year to hear directly from clients about where they intend to take the software, of which in many cases, I'm only one part. And when they start talking about service and openness and the way they're wanting to manage data and the way that they feel about data governance and all of the things that you know they're thinking about around their strategy, I've seen that it's really informed the way we think about it. So that's another like in practice about how I'm trying to take insights in from our key clients and how they're forming their strategies to ensure that we're complementary to it. And that we have an idea that, you know, look, if we've got customers that are really saying integration is important to us, and if you're not an API enabled software provider, we're not looking to do business with you. I've had customers that have that have stated that. That's one of their their success criteria going through procurement right now. And so it's incredibly important that we have that good picture. And we also have practical examples about how we've done it with standardized kit that we've built out messaging layers that have messages that have been identified that can be used and harnessed for both capital markets and for wealth, and that we've got an inventory of those that can be used to assemble when we've got integrations with clients. Yeah, so Tyler, and, and I believe everything you're saying, like it, just one time I want to have like an interview with the CTO where they're like, you know, what you said, we're thoughtful listeners to clients and, you know, we care, we care about being complimentary. One time I just <laughs> want to have a CTO come on and be like, I don't, we're, I'm just going to do this. We don't care about what the client says. But so I believe um, that that is a major part of the job. Let me ask you this then, because this is something that we write a lot about. We, I, I think at Waters, we've been more the, the naysayers when it comes to something like blockchain. Broadridge has been a big believer in blockchain for certain aspects of its Proxies and even like for something like proxy voting, it makes sense to me. I understand why like that technology would work for that. But, you know, we've recently seen um, whether it's with the Australian security sharing ASX's um, chess uh, uh, platform going with the DLT, whether it's um, we wrote a story about a way wrote a story about um, DTCC, DTCC. Sorry, it's a tough word to just say out uh, acronym. Um, their uh, trade information warehouse um, replatforming, they gave an, um, uh, a cloud offering, but they also offered something, uh, an access layer via a DLT. And of their 4,000 clients, 
all 4,000 chose cloud. No one chose the uh, blockchain offering. It would seem to me, I'm not an expert, you are, that the industry is saying publicly they'll talk about blockchain, but when it comes to practical use cases, they're like, no, outside of cryptocurrencies, digital assets, tokenization, where you have to have a DLT. Um, for the day-to-day um, data warehousing needs of the industry, the industry seems to me to be saying blockchain is not the way forward. What are your thoughts on blockchain today? And you know, wh- where do you maybe think I'm wrong on my assessment of the landscape right now? I'll I'll be honest with you. I don't think you're wrong. I I think maybe just to back up a few points on that. uh, The use case is really important to me. You know, when we're talking about architecture and design choices, the use case is really important. If uh, and and I'll talk about that in a minute about you know why and how we've tried to leverage that type of technology for just really narrow use cases. When, when I think about that kind of kit going across a clearance and settlement platform at scale with us, um, the speed of it is a concern of mine and has been, you know, I think that, you know, that's still a concern of how quickly that type of technology can handle, you know, transactions per second at arrival rates that need to stick. There's no doubt that once it sticks, it 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 holds it, you know, there's nothing about tokenization that we've got a challenge around. It's just how quickly can it process? You know, we work in a very high rate, high speed of transaction industry. And I just don't see the use cases right now for that type of kit. Um, we, ha- we haven't seen things that we've been able to run at scale um, in testing that have proven out that it's that type of a use case tech. And a lot of the tech that we run is of that type. There's some narrow use cases that we've determined that the tech is interesting um, and it's more like the feature set inside of it. So, you know, the smart contracts aspect of it was very interesting for us around the DLT repo just because we wanted to combine I would say that smart contracts capability and the fact that it happened to be on, um, you know, a ledger kit, you know, it made sense because there was some business and feature benefit of smart contracts that we could also layer into the way that the the actual technology could help us. And also the transaction volumes were pretty low. So high notional value in, in many of these cases, but the transaction rate of arrival is pretty low. And when I when I think about that, you know, that was really a consideration when we thought about using this. The other is, you know, we do like to innovate. And so we like to do careful innovation, you know, not trying to get to be, you know, bleeding edge. But we thought this was also a capability we need to get some hands on and practical experience um, to see exactly how we would leverage it. So when we identified both the smart contracts, so the feature side of it, along with you know the transaction volumes you know the arrival rate was pretty low the use case kind of matched for us but you know broader than that you know we don't see a lot of viability going into our hardcore transaction systems for this kind of kit so when when you said that i i'm in in agreement with those kind of statements there's a lot of maturity that would need to happen on speed for that to become real you do you think that i think that there was a messaging problem when it comes to blockchain 
that's existed since you know 2015, 16, 17, 18, you know, kind of that kind of hype cycle era. Um, so the messaging I think was wrong. It it really was this will this will revolutionize the capital markets. And it's like that never portrayed that never kind of came out. But do you see in the future as this technology matures, even though it's had some, you know, it's a decade of maturation? Do you envision it where it's become something that can become more high volume, um, accessible to the capital markets? Or is your vision right now of it, obviously opinions can change in the future, is your opinion of it right now that it will become that high volumes, it can handle all that? Or is your opinion that you think for the capital markets and for, you know, equities, trading, settlement, things like that, you know? that it's still going to be, it's just not appropriate right now and and you're not envisioning it being appropriate for it. I guess as a futurist almost, how do you view that technology is, is the question. I'm sorry, I was rambling, all my questions aren't. But uh, <laughs> how do you view it as a futurist? Is it something that you're like, no, I, I really do have faith and believe that this will evolve into that revolutionary technology? Or is it something where you're like, I'm not seeing it right now. It doesn't mean your, your opinion can't change in the future. Well, I think there's uh, there's a couple things to unpack inside of that. I think if you look at what's it was going random, on, I know. no, but there's a couple things to unpack. You know, if you look at, um, I would say a bit of the collateral damage that's happened recently with you know um, a lot of the markets that have been built on this ledger technology, you know, going sideways, and you know, you look at what's happened in the market around that. I think there's a lot of negative vibe about really the compliancy that can be put into this technology, and so I think there's a little bit of baggage around that right now. So just I'll 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 pump the brake on on maybe deep diving into that, but that's a real consideration right now. You know, how can we as a technology I would say industry, people that are practitioners like myself, make sure that when we've got capabilities like this, whether it's blockchain or something new, that we ensure that we've got the guardrails around it, that we can securitize and ensure that there's security around the assets that people hold. I think there's a real trust factor in the market right now with this type of technology because of things that have happened recently. You know, large aspects of money just disappearing. You know, that's not comfortable. That's not something you hear about JP Morgan Chase or uh, large banks, you know. And so I think there's a lot of tail around, I would say, that negative cloud that's swirling around that topic. If you look at the tech itself, I think in the future, it could be very relevant for things in our industry. It's really a, a matter of scale. Um, there's security aspects to it, but I think people are now understanding the the way to govern and control it. There needs to be a lot more regulation about how it's used and, and access methods around it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a lot more sophisticated tech, but you know, I think that the I think what we've seen in the market recently is that um, it just is not well governed. And so I think that that's, that's a big aspect that's going to be a black cloud that even if we were interested in putting kit on that um, to talk to our clients, our security officers at our customers about that right now would be a sensitive topic. You know, they'd have a lot of questions like how can you ensure that this thing is going to be accurate, that you don't have back doors to get into the capability, a lot more scrutiny of it. So um, 
I don't think that's a no, but I think in the shorter term, in the next several years, that's going to be something that's definitely going to be an industry charge to try to understand how we can change the perception of this tech stack. Um, the actual engineering around it, I think the engineering, the compute will get faster. Um, and I do think there's use cases that we will continue to explore things like this, but it's got to be the right use case. Um, and I can't stress that enough. You know, when this first started, there were people that were indicating, look, all clearance and settlement platforms can be replaced. Um, and I was like, look, that's great. I'm not going to place my bet on that, yeah. um, you know, and, you know, I think that there's, but I do think that what we've done with it, we've been pretty proud of it. Um, and I think we've used it in the right way. Um, but I think that's all about identifying the right use case for the architecture. I think that's interesting because I think uh, blockchain has been quite synonymous with, you know, the move to shorter settlement cycles and getting to T plus zero even. Um, so I just curious on on the move to T plus one. How are you at Broadridge actually, you know, helping your clients deal with that move? Um, you know, particularly here in the U.S., but obviously in EMEA and APEC as well. There are um, uh, consequences there, right, in terms of the time zone and and uh, limitations there. So how are you helping your clients to kind of get on on board with that? Well, there, there's. There's a couple of things there, you know, the work that we've been, you know, looking at over, you know, a set of years really around how, you know, capable are our systems providing that kind of settlement process today. You know, we've got large fortresses that we run in market today for, you know, clearing and settling activity. And we think that really they're well positioned right now. There's not a lot of re-engineering, et cetera, that needs to happen with our, our technical kit. That being said, you know, we're part of a larger ecosystem in many of our clients and things that even have been done, I would call it via like more uh, old school batch file mechanisms that we still have clients that at times are getting batch feeds in for overnight work that's happening. You know, all of that and how I think customers are taking, I would say, the downstream exhaust that come out of a lot of our clearance and settlement systems is an area where we're trying to work with our clients and and doing um you know outreach to them to talk about how they're thinking about taking what i would say is that exhaust that's coming out of the back end of the systems and really think about modernizing that into more of a real-time interfacing um you know alerting risk management systems reconcilement platforms general ledger feeds um you know things that they they would take and need you know how much does that change um and so those are some of the discussions that i would say are really prominent with our clients of talking about look how are you thinking about this and how are you re-architecting the way you're taking exhaust out of our systems and what do we need to do to partner together to ensure that we can support that um, you know, there's areas where you could simply say, you know, look, let's get to real time and use an API. It may not be practical, you know, for some of the ways that these systems are being fed downstream. So um, there's a lot of outreach with customers right now and each customer environment you can imagine is a little bit unique um, in cases where, you know, how are they leveraging the technology and how is it being fed back into do um, their platform? So that's one. The other is really how people could think about managed services. So, you know, we also, you know, have a people business in addition to a, a technology business. And are there ways that our people business can help people transition into this T1 mindset? Um, and are there things that we can do around tooling, et cetera, even around the personnel that we could help them transition into that? 
part of it's you know knowledge transfer and the way our systems you know operate. Um, so we we we've been trying to help them in those two ways. Um, in addition to that. It's also making sure that, you know, we've made and tested out the right changes inside of our platforms, which industry testing, et cetera, you know, we've already been through. So um, if that gives you a sense of how, how we've been preparing for T1. All right. So I want to finish things off. A okay. Lightning round. Okay. We've already right. done the buzzword of blockchain, so we'll, we'll get that out. But I want to bring up five kind of technologies or kind of various discussions I want your kind of quick thoughts on, on what you think of these things and how you as a as a CTO are approaching these, okay? I'm right. ready. Okay, let's do it. First, the natural one, the one that everybody's talking about. Not just chat GPT, but you have Bloomberg GPT, but you have this whole large language model. Um, we're at the precipice of the of this terminology and Broadridge being a company that sucks in a ton of data, LLMs would be something I would think are on your purview, if anything. Maybe you're not coming up with your own GPT kind of thing. But how do you view this kind of, at least in a public sphere, the advent of large language models, chat GPT? How do you talk with clients? How do you talk with the board of directors at Broadridge? How do you have that discussion right now today? Well, there's there's a couple of topics inside of that. One is also how we're thinking about innovating around it internally. So I'll just add that to it. So the board, the clients, and then also internally. You know, we're really trying to foster an environment where our engineering staff looks at us as being an innovative fintech company while we're also secure. You know, um, a lot of our brand is around being secure and trusted. And so what we've really wanted to do is foster a way that we can innovate and in getting things in on, into what I call a sandbox, a secure sandbox, where we can have our teams start to get more familiar and comfortable with how they could leverage these large language models like ChatGPT GPT in their products. Um, also, you know, creating, if you will, abilities for us to think about, you know, how could we do autocomplete in code, you know, um, co-pilots and ride-alongs with engineering staff. And so we're innovating several areas around that today. And I would say that that's more internally. When I talk to clients, I'm also trying to gauge how they're, especially people that are in my peer group, how are they thinking about leveraging it from things of taking legacy code that's in heritage systems and refactoring it using chat GPT. I've had discussions with that naming client names in the last month that uh, one of my fellow colleagues is actually looking at to modernize systems and they've got teams assembled to go and do that. That's an interesting use case. And I think we're learning more even from ourselves and our peer group of how others are trying to approach this problem and using this technology to address it. That That's one that I thought was very interesting. Um, the other is how to look at documenting systems that may be heritage or legacy, things that have deep intellectual property that you built over years or possibly in our case you've acquired, how could you leverage it to really harvest really good documentation about what is in your code? So you could start to think about how you could create a next generation offering. That those are the kind of you know things around the fringes outside of engineering that are interesting aspects of how this large language model could be used to help solve the tech problem. And then the last is, you know, things around um, how we could optimize or leverage it to augment our engineering staff. 
whether it's doing test-driven design, you know, feed test cases of if I build this type of technology, what are the test scenarios that I need to have into a large language model that, you know, it creates scale in very different ways, I think, for engineering staff that we're only starting to scratch the surface on it. Those are more board level discussions. You know, thinking about how does this really change the way we engineer in the future? How can we do it in a safe and secure way, but that we could have, you know, um, the ability to harness this to really get better velocity? It's less about the cost, but get better velocity out of engineering. So you talk about coding, talk about engineering, low code, no code. What's your thoughts? Is it the future of the of programming of engineering or is it an overused uh, uh, thing that you drop into a press release? I've had some real mixed experience on that. That is like uh, shaking up a two liter of Diet Coke and opening the top on it. I would say <laughs> that I've had very good, hey, we talk about low code, no code, and what's in the press release and what's in the PowerPoint actually can be done by business analysts, and it's actually just that easy. And then others where it looks great on PowerPoint, but in practicality, there's not a lot of depth to the tech stack. Uh, I would say thus far, we have seen a couple of use cases where it, it's been, it's worked. We've used it for more UI construction and UI design, things that are frequently changed by end users. So we've used it more kind of the UI aspects. Um, and, and, and less probably on building, you know, enterprise platforms leveraging it. Um, so I would say that um, I've not been an all-in net buyer on that. I think I've been at somewhat of a skeptic what what's been interesting is it really normally gets business owners super interested and they you know scurry a lot of activity around it and they're like look i'm going to be fully autonomous and i no longer need you and then normally what i've seen happen thus far is they get it inside and then it's like hey we need your help yeah. um so the no code or low code I'd say it's above a little bit of low code and it's definitely not a no code platform. Um, I think it's interesting in the future and it's, and it's going to continue to evolve. Um, but, you know, I would say that some of this stuff's hype. Yeah. You know? So then one more for you. Okay. Quantum computing. How do like you, it? you know, as you know, obviously commercialized quantum computing is not available today. It might not be available in the next decade. How is you as a CTO trying to be innovative, trying to understand what's to come down the pike? How do you engage with what quantum computing will be, what it is today, and what it might mean for uh, your organization going forward? We have had a couple of uh, use cases that we've tried to partner with, let's say, IBM's quant shop to to look at how we could take clearing and settling and really think about it in a in a new way. And you know, I would say that it's an area where, you know, we want to continue to keep apprised of what's available. I'd call it like the next gen of the mainframe. You know, what does that really look like? And how can we leverage it for at least some of the high speed regulatory work that we do? Um, so I think there's there's real effort that we've put into trying to assess what are good use cases. We've tried to prove some things out in terms of speed. Um, it's really the cost effectiveness of it right now, you know, trying to get something that's practically cost effective. I think we've seen really good performance on the use cases. We just haven't seen that right now it's cost effective for running a utility like ours. But we want to continue to try to experiment with it because we do believe that 
if you think about what the mainframe is to many organizations like ours today, it, it's probably, you know, the quant computing is like the 1980s in the mainframes. And so, you know, we, we continue to think that it's, it's going to be a, a required technology kit that we're going to need to have. Okay, and final question for you, Tyler. So as, as a technologist, like tell me, tell us one thing that is not related to the financial markets that you are excited about today. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one that uh, it's been more of a, probably a personal endeavor, you know, as things started to, uh, you know, started to really get hot in the crypto markets. Um, one of the things that I've got kids that are in uh, college, one of them is studying cyber and he's like, look, I, I really want to see, you know, they're mining, you know, coins and what could we do? And I said, look, you know, if we really want to learn about it, why don't we just build a kit from the floor up? So we built all of the, the kit ordering it off of eBay and assembling it. Um, and and I tell you that because look, when when I think about the future of how this type of technology with like distributed ledger processing, even the way that they're doing kit that people can run their own coin mining. I mean, that's just such a different paradigm that people are running almost their own mini data center in many cases that's trusted. You know, there aren't very many examples besides SETI doing satellite screening that, you know, <laughs> that we've got personal computers really harnessing data center power to, you know, solve a task. Um, so I, I use that as one if you think about I always try to look at things that are maybe happening in the market in ways that I can continue to be a lifelong learner, is I guess the way I describe it. Um, because, you know, it's going to be important to not only understand it, but, you know, what's the practical way that you use it? Um, so I know that probably isn't an exact answer to your question, but um, maybe a little bit of sharing about what I do in my off hours. No, are that's teaching, great. <laughs> are you teaching your kids about the, I always worry about the environmental effects of of crypto mining and stuff like that. That's something that you know we need to we need to really kind of get our heads around. Hey, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. So one one of the things the first um, the first night after we had the kit assembled, we plugged it into the wall, and guess what? Blew a circuit, and it was the first <laughs> time that my my. Uh, my older son, he was like, look, uh, you know, this thing really takes a lot of juice. And I, it really dawned on him all the things that they read yeah. that they saw real right in front of them. I mean, yeah. it's like running a, a washer and dryer full time inside of the house, you know, and I think it really put a proof point to it. And in fact, it's funny you bring that up that after a point, um, my older boys, they're twins, they got together and we ended up uh, pulling it offline just because of that. No, it's it's one of the it's new technologies, like even large language models. There's so many ish, like environmental things that aren't being kind of considered right now that will come to the forefront at some point. But as you say, you do it and you see it in real time. You see the circuit blow. You're like, oh, this isn't just some imaginary thing that this is actually, you got to actually get your hands dirty a little bit. It's experimentation. It's exploration. It's science, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I assume that everybody was just wowed by my wrapping that all up in a neat bow. And so we will end the conversation there. But Tyler, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Yeah, it's great. It's a pleasure talking with both of you. Thanks, Tyler.